Our gospel reading for today comes from the gospel according to Matthew, chapter 1, beginning with the 18th verse. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from, his, from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but he had no marital relations with her until she had born a son, and he named him Jesus. Here ends our reading. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, hopefully for you, the gifts are are bought. Although if you're anyone like me, um, I'm definitely a December 24th buying gifts kind of guy. The internet is very much my friend. Um, But the gifts are bought. Your plans for Christmas Eve are are all set. Perhaps you're about to take off on travel today or people are coming into town to visit you here. The anticipation of Christmas is alive in the air. And here at church, we continue our journey on Advent. If you'll... Recall, this, uh, this Advent, I've been engaged in a sermon series about preparing our way, preparing the way for the Advent, for the Adventus, for the arrival of God, for that transformative power of God in our lives. I began on week one by saying that if we want to be ready for that transformative power of God in our lives, we have to actually look for it and wait for it. We have to be conscious and think about where does God show up. And then week two, I talked about this concept of repentance, metanoia, or in Hebrew, shuv, the sense of needing to turn, uh, turn to God, and specifically turn inward and prepare ourselves inwardly if we are going to be ready to find the Adventus, that transformative power of God. And then last week, I asked, what, uh, how does Jesus fit into all of this? How is Jesus uh, the manifestation of this presence of God in our lives? What does that mean for us? And today, uh, we take our final turn before Christmas Eve, and that's where we consider the concept of faith. What is faith? Commonly in society and in Christian circles, faith is seen as being the assent or belief in things that are impossible to believe. That if you, in order to have faith, you must believe that all the miracles in the Bible happened exactly as they were described. That's faith. For others, faith is assenting to a certain creed or creedal statement. If you have faith, you're someone who can affirm the Nicene Creed, for instance. 
that in order to be a member of the church, in order to be baptized, in order to be a Christian, you have to affirm this particular creed. I don't know about you, I've always felt uncomfortable about those conceptions of faith. That whole sense of having to believe something that seems unbelievable. Why would God call on us to put our rational minds aside just so we can become Christian? But if I feel uncomfortable with that, what does faith actually look like? And this is where our text for this morning is a great help to us. The birth story in Matthew's gospel does not focus on Mary. The birth story in Matthew's gospel focuses on the person of Joseph. He is the leading character here. And in this text, we see an example of what Christian faith looks like. Now, during this sermon series, I have intentionally used three different theological perspectives to explore some of the concepts we've been looking at. And I've done this because these concepts, these these three theological perspectives are three things that I've been wrestling with personally and that mean a lot to me and also I think that are highly relevant to all of you here at First Congregational Church. And so what do these perspectives have to tell us about the nature of faith, what faith is or what it is not? The first perspective I've been looking at is this Jesuit spiritual leader and theologian, Anthony DeMello, and specifically with his book, Awareness. Now, DeMello, <clears throat> DeMello is someone who has an interesting take on faith. For DeMello, faith is a radical openness to the truth, regardless of where it might lead you. A radical openness to the truth, regardless of where it might lead you. DeMello claims most people are asleep. They're not awake. Most people are comfortable with the illusions of their lives. We like things as they are, and so we carry on with them, even though, even though they may not be true. And when we come across something that calls us to perhaps discover the truth, usually we're afraid. We don't want to step there. But according to Mello, a person of faith is someone who is willing to go step out there into that radical space in a search for truth, regardless of where it might lead. We have a great example of that in the character of Joseph in our story, actually. Joseph here is someone who is a respectable person in his community, someone who's engaged to be married uh, to this young bride, and all of a sudden he finds out that his wonderful bride is pregnant. That would be an awkward situation for anyone, and particularly for someone who is righteous before the law in the first century. What do you do? How do you respond to that? Joseph ends up having this profound religious experience where an angel comes to him and tells him that he should go ahead and marry her and then raise this child as his own, even though he's not the biological father. One easy thing to do would be to say, you know what, that was just a crazy dream. I'm going to go carry on my way and do the safe path. After all, I don't want to be judged by my neighbors. But that's not what Joseph does. Joseph actually listens to that call of God because he wants to find out what the truth is. And so he's willing to take this radical step of marrying Mary and raising this child as his own because he wants to see where God is leading him. He's willing to take that step. That, according to DeMello, is faith. Someone who's willing to have a radical openness to the truth regardless of where it might lead that person. Now, here at FCC, uh, I think we're pretty good about a radical openness to the truth when it comes to theological concepts. After all, that's one thing we pride ourselves on. We are not people who are bound by the orthodoxy of the past. We're not bound by the creeds of the past. 
Uh, We're willing to see uh, where there is yet more light and truth to break forth from God's holy word, and we want to follow after that. This is one thing we're good at. So in terms of the theological aspect uh, of that search for truth, we're there. But then again, for us, the consequences of doing so are relatively minimal. After all, we've already made the step to be here. It might be a lot harder for someone in different churches to take that step to question some received uh, beliefs in a search for truth. But where, where might God be calling you to deeper truth in your life where it might be uncomfortable? What might that look like? When I was in Iowa in 2013, again, as I've said before, I was really run down and burnt out. I wasn't in a great place in my own personal life. Um, I was really struggling with my vocation as I was so run down day in and day out, working seven days a week. Uh, I felt very isolated personally. And again, living in rural Iowa, I was nowhere near any of my family. And I made the very difficult decision to uh, take an intentional break from ministry and leave that church in Iowa. Voluntarily, I decided to just say, you know what, this is, I need to go do something else because this, what I'm doing right now, just doesn't feel like I'm being authentic to where God wants me to be and what God wants me to do. So I took that step. And I have to say, that was one of the hardest decisions I ever made in my life. At the time, I thought I was committing uh, professional suicide. I'm like, there's no way a church is ever going to hire me again after I, you know, just get up and leave a church after two and a half years. Um, I had to swallow my personal pride as I went home, as here I was in my 30s, and I, and I had no job, <laughs> and I had to figure out what I was going to do, uh, and I knew I needed a break from ministry. Um, I had to go move in with my mother, uh, which is always a little bit embarrassing in your 30s when you move in with your mother. But I decided, I said, this is what I have to do. And I have to say, that was 100% the right choice. I knew in my heart of hearts that truth was leading me to make that step, and I made that step. And I'm grateful that I did. But it wasn't an easy step. And for me, that falling after what I thought was God calling me, what I thought was truth, uh, was made easier by the fact that I didn't have a family to support. Uh, I didn't have a mortgage to pay. Some people aren't so lucky. There's someone in town here uh, who reached out to me a couple years ago um, and sat down and we started talking. This is a person with two young kids. um, And uh, he's married to a woman, but he said to me that he's gay and he doesn't know what to do. And um, his wife had uh, caught him uh, cheating on her with with, with a man and he was sort of stuck. He's like, what? What path do I take? And I'm still in touch with this guy, and we've, we still carry on conversations. Um, and he's refused to take any step to actually get out of his marriage, to try and find some sort of future, in part because he's petrified. He's afraid that if he actually follows that truth, he'll ruin his relationship with his kids. Uh, the community where he lives is a pretty conservative community uh, in the Houston area. Uh, what's going to happen to the friends that know him if he comes out? And gets divorced. And then the other thing that he's afraid of, he's like, let's say I do go through all this process, I go through all this pain, and then I'm out in the gay community and, and no, one, no one wants to date me. Then where am I left? Am I really any better off? And so here, here he is. He was in the same place several years ago when I first met him. And, he hasn't, and he, has not, he hasn't moved one bit in those last several years. And he's just as miserable now, actually, as he's ever been. But again, I feel for him. He needs to have faith that somehow... He has some sort of calling outside where he is now in order to take that step, but that's not an easy step to take. Uh, there's someone else in, this, uh, in, in the Houston area who reached out to me a few months ago. And this is a person who's a minister at a conservative church. 
And this is someone who grew up in a conservative household religiously, uh, went to a Christian college, went right to their seminary, and then went right into ministry. And all along, he started having growing doubts about his ministry. Um, and he reached out to me and sat down and said, John, I have to, I have to be honest, I, my theology is much more in line with you guys than it is with the church that I work at. <laughs> but this guy's got a wife and kids, um, and it would be quite a step for him to say to the church where he's serving right now, hey, I just don't believe the stuff that you believe anymore. I can't do this. Uh, but that's a big step. It requires a radical openness to the truth and seeing where it might lead. That's faith. And I think if we're all honest with ourselves, there are a lot of places in our lives where we prefer not to face the truth because it's easier not to. I don't know what that truth might be for you in your life, where God might be tugging you and you're in your life, but I realize that it's not an easy step to try and search for the truth regardless of where it might take you. It does require, it is the, it is the faith that DeMello is talking about. You can see why it's such a bold move. It was a bold move for Joseph, and it's a bold move for us. Do we have faith? The second theological perspective that we've been looking at is Paul Tillich, this great 20th century Christian existentialist, um, a giant for good Protestant churches like First Congregational Church and other congregational churches. Uh, Tillich, uh, again, he's, he's always, he likes using special language, so you have to bear with me for a second. Um, but for Tillich, uh, he, wrote, he wrote an entire book, actually, on faith, one of his most famous books, and a very accessible one. So if you want a good introduction to his theology, his book on faith called Dynamics of Faith is a good place to start. So for Tillich, he talked about how we have vital concerns, that's to say those things like our food, uh, housing, things like that, things that we need for life, vital concerns. But we also have spiritual concerns. And particularly, uh, there are those things that concern us ultimately, our ultimate concerns. So an ultimate concern is something that requires total commitment, but offers total fulfillment. That is an ultimate concern. So Tilly gives us an example of an ultimate concern, uh, the nation state. So again, Tilly was a German, and he was kicked out of Nazi Germany in 1933. And so he saw what happened when people made the state their ultimate concern, where they were, able to sat, they were willing to sacrifice anything it took for the state. They were willing to go fight for the state no matter what the state orders. They are willing to send their, their sons off to go die for the state no matter what it orders. They are willing to accept higher tax burdens, rationing on food, whatever it takes. The state, takes, the state becomes that, that ultimate concern. That's what an ultimate concern is. He says uh, another context is success. For a lot of people, success becomes an ultimate concern. That, you know, you're willing to lay down anything it takes to get success. You're willing to sacrifice personal friendships and uh, short-term happiness because somehow this success will give ultimate fulfillment, even though, of course, it never does. God is also a potential ultimate concern for people. That ground of our being is an ultimate concern, something that we can focus on and that can be uh, a, a beacon that leads us in life. And so what faith is for Paul Tillich, faith is being grasped by that ultimate concern. When you are grasped by your ultimate concern, you have faith. Now again, this concept, Tillich was a good Lutheran, at least he was raised a Lutheran. So there's not, that, there's not this concept of once you have faith, then you're all good. Like you just check a box and you ride off in the sunset. No, faith is something that uh, faith is something that comes into our life and transforms us, but there are moments of a lack of faith as well. 
Again, we're not always grasped by our ultimate concern. We're not always grasped by God. But there are times where we are, and those times can change us. Look at Joseph. When Joseph had that visitation from the angel, whatever that looked like, however it manifested itself, when the angel visited Joseph, that was an example of Joseph being grasped by his ultimate concern. Here is a holy man, a righteous man, and all of a sudden, God comes to him and says, this is what you must do. And that moment transformed him, grounded him in God, and gave him the courage to be himself and to actually go ahead and marry Mary and then raise Jesus as his own. That was an example of faith being grasped by your ultimate concern. I remember in 2006, after I had finished uh, my internship at Wapping Community Church, uh, I was pretty discouraged about certain aspects of the ministry coming out of Wapping, and I decided to withdraw my name from the ordination process. And there were a number of issues that went into this, one of which is being a gay man in the ministry. It turns out that's not the easiest thing in the world. Um, and when I actually realized that, I was like, hey, maybe this isn't the right career path for me. Um, but I remember a few days after that, I was walking on Prospect Street in New Haven, Connecticut. And as I was walking down the road, I had this incredible, powerful experience of God in my life, reaffirming me in my very center and reaffirming my call. And it was so powerful that I literally walked down to Sterling Memorial Library at the center of New Haven, immediately opened up my computer and emailed the committee saying, by the way, I take that back. I really do want to do this. I feel like this is a call. Thankfully, they were flexible and took me back in the process. <laughs> um, but it was that moment of faith, and it, it, it changed me and led me to act. It was very powerful. Why do we come to worship here at First Congregational Church? I hope you come to worship at First Congregational Church because it's a place where your faith is nurtured. Whether it be in the hymns or the preaching, in the reading of scripture, in the prayers, that sometimes during these services you are grasped by your ultimate concern. You somehow feel God very present in your life. You feel grounded in your ground of being. And it leads you to act. And it can take all different forms. I mean, I see Shirley walking this morning. And one of the things that uh, made me think of is when Ricardo uh, got up here and gave his personal testimony about being undocumented and being a recipient of, the, uh, of, of uh, being a part of the DACA program. And him talking about the fear of being an undocumented person, about how DACA changed his life. This, this was, again, I remember that, where you could hear a pin drop in the meeting house. And there was this sense, this in, intense spiritual sense of saying, you know, we have to do something. And I, again, I'm proud of this congregation, like wanting to go do something, to be like, the right thing is to follow God on this path. And following God in this path is allowing people the freedom to be true to themselves and free from fear. When have you been grasped by your ultimate concern? What does that look like? How has it shaped you? The third perspective I looked at is this one of liberation theology. And liberation theology is an interesting one because uh, it is deeply suspect of orthodoxy. In other words, it's deeply suspect of people who say that the most important thing is right belief. Liberation theology, as I mentioned before, grows out of South America. And these liberation theologians saw uh, the Roman Catholic Church of its day emphasizing, oh, right belief is what matters. Right belief is what matters. You know, you've got to go do your sacraments and, do that, and then everything else. Meanwhile, there's all this poverty and suffering in society. And orthodoxy isn't doing anything about it. And so liberation theologians say the faith is not orthodoxy. Faith for liberation theologians is orthopraxis. It's right action. 
That's, according to liberation theologians, what matters, actually being involved in the act of liberation. Joseph, according to our story, was a righteous man. Righteous, in the technical sense of the term, means he was a follower of the law. The law was very clear when someone uh, was an adulterer, the right thing to do was to expose them so that they got justice. So if Joseph was doing the right thing, as in following the law, he would have exposed Mary. That's what the law required of him. But Joseph did not do that. He intentionally did not follow the law and was intending on trying to have a separation from Mary in a way that did not expose her and did not lead to any sort of punishment or further pain for her. And in that act of standing with those who are, who are marginalized, in this case, Mary, this teenage girl who was pregnant, here's Joseph standing with Mary. And in that act of liberation, in that act of solidarity, uh, he has this incredible revelation where the angel comes to him and says, yes, here's another way forward. Go follow us. I think about uh, in 2007, uh, as I was ending my time at Yale Divinity School, uh, I still had uh, my ethics course to take. And I was looking around at the list of courses, and there's this one course that said uh, feminist ethics and liberation theology. And I looked at that, and I was like, well, you know, I feel like I probably should know something about liberation theology before I graduate. Um, But I was a little wary of this course and what what it might mean. And so I remember taking this course and being utterly transformed by it. Because all of a sudden, uh, here were women getting up and proudly giving their own personal testimonies, particularly their testimonies of living in a misogynist society. And I hate to admit the reality, but the reality was is that in my little bubble, I had not often heard a woman give a testimony about what it's like to be a woman in society and the various levels of oppression that exist. My mother was not one who would sit down and go, John, let me tell you about the oppression I feel as a woman in this society. Um, and as I heard this, as I heard these lived experiences, one after another after another, there's that sense of something, that, something in me that changes, being like, gosh, there's no way this is right. And also seeing how the Bible had been used to actually justify this kind of patriarchy. You know, you can say that those parts of the Bible that justify that patriarchy are clearly wrong. They're getting in the way of this whole message of liberation that's at the heart of the gospel message. For liberation theology, again, you start with human experience, and then you go from there, and you reflect on lived life, and then you go from there. And this was just an eye-opening experience to be in this course. And then it allows you to listen to the experiences of others, to experience, listen to to people who who have faced various forms of discrimination, whether it be because of race, whether it be because of age. Discrimination based on you know, sexual orientation and gender identity. Discrimination based on poverty. The various forms of discrimination that so open society. And when you actually listen to people's experiences and then take those experiences back to a reflection of the gospel, in that process, that's where faith is engendered. Faith is right action by standing with those on the margins. Do you have that faith? In two days... We'll gather back here for the great celebration of Christmas Eve. And we'll have our lights and silent night, and I can't wait for that moment. But before we get there, I do want you to consider on this Advent journey, what is faith for you? Take a moment in the busyness to think about that in the next couple of days. What is faith for you? The goal for all of us is to ensure that on Christmas Eve, 
we find ourselves with the shepherds who are open to the miracle coming into our lives and not the innkeeper. But in order to do that, we have to think about what it means to have faith.